Uh, we're in a series, week two of Blueprint, and you discussed uh, one of or your favorite app just a few moments ago, and, and in a whole different direction, I don't know if you've ever searched for the most useless apps, but I did that this week and discovered some interesting stuff. Uh, one app in particular uh, might sound useful. It's called the Electric Shaver, and it looks like a razor and sounds like a razor, but I just don't feel anything, you know, cutting when I do that. So I don't know, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Or, or there's this game app and, and you open up the app and you put your finger anywhere on the screen and points just start racking up, which is pretty cool because, you know, we all want more points, right? When we play games. But as soon as you take your finger off, it's like, okay, game over, you lose. The only interesting, useful thing it does tell you is how much time you wasted doing that. And then there's the Will You Marry Me app. Single guys, don't take note, but um, it opens up a ring box Right? And then it has a ring in there and it says yes or no. Not a good strategy. Girls probably want it a different way. Um, and then this one made me laugh. There's a leftover swap app. When you go out to eat, you take a picture of your leftovers. And someone in the area who's in tune to the app can look in and go, hey, there's seven more noodles left in your macaroni and cheese. I want that. And they can come get it. Or you can do the reverse and eat someone's half-eaten cheeseburger if you want. Your choice, exactly. And then there's the... Um, the app that I basically refer to as the BroStash app, uh, and you basically upload pictures, and you know it's it's maybe useful. I mean, it was useful to my six-year-old son who liked seeing me in different mustaches, you know. But aside from that, it's pretty useless. Um, and, and so these all these useless apps, and the list goes on. I had to cut it to five uh, for time. I could have had a lot more fun with it, but they're useless apps. And there's a lot of useful apps, but but interestingly enough, when you think about a great app designer. What they have to think about before they create a great app is, is, is the purpose and intent of the app. I mean, you know that. How will the person use it? Right? What will the app's purpose be? The intended function always determines the design of the app. And in a, rem- in a remarkably similar way, the master designer, God, the master designer created you. He determined what purpose and function he had in mind with you before he created you, what he wanted you to do with your life. And when we look at the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, it tells us a lot about uh, what I would call a design theology. And there's so much there. I mean, in the Old Testament, God is compared to the potter and we are the clay and he's molding and shaping us. This implies design. I mean, in Job 10 verse 8, he says, you form me with your hands, you design me or you shape me. And then we jump to the New Testament, and there's so much there in the Gospels and Epistles, but, but it's about God's unique design of human beings. In Revelation 4, verse 11, it says this, You alone, God, created all things, and through your will and by your design, they exist and were created by your design. And on and on these metaphors and, and, and ideas go. In fact, one of them it includes the body of Christ, which we're going to talk more about next week. But we're all a unique part. We're, we all have a design that's specific that fits into the whole. Well, what I want to do today with you is to dialogue and really plunge deeper into understanding the unique you. How has God designed you specifically? And I want to guide us through a conversation of discovering God's design or blueprint for your life. Because that blueprint can become a map for you that can create clarity, that can create direction 
and align you with God's intent and purpose specifically for your life. But here's the deal. When you think about the unique you, what you have to do, what all of us have to do individually, is we have to examine the clues. In the Bible, we read one treatment of Galatians 6 verse 4, tells us this, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself, right? Stay sober-minded about that. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. So let me offer a framework for us this morning that organizes some of the clues that are important for all of us to sift through, clues that the Scriptures tell us to pay close attention to. The framework is is really an acronym, the word design, and and these six letters encompass six core dimensions of who you are. These are significant bricks in the foundation of your faith and your life. So we begin with the letter D for desires. We have all different kinds of desires, and they range from, uh, on one side, noble desires, and on another side, unhealthy desires, or you could say even toxic desires. And all of your desires reside in what's called the heart. The Bible uses the term heart essentially to describe your bundle of hopes and affections and ambitions, your dreams, your interests, your passions. Your heart represents the source of all your desires and motivations, the things you love the most, the things you care about the most. In a word, you could say passion. Proverbs 27, 19 As a face is reflected in the water, so the heart reflects the real person. Your desires reveal the real you. They determine why you say what you say, feel what you feel, think what you think, act how you act. Now, most of us, we don't have really trouble having passion or really knowing what our passions are. I mean, sometimes we can. But for for many of us, our difficulty lies in what passions we fuel and follow and allow to define our lives. So I have a friend whose primary passion is gambling. So he wakes up, and and the one desire that he's obsessed with, with is getting to the casino. I have other friends, one of them on the other side of the spectrum, like my brother-in-law, who has a passion for restoring racial brokenness in his community in Chicago. And he wakes up every day with this almost irrational desire to build a racially integrated community. There are passions that lead us to destruction, and there are passions that lead us to life. Some of us land somewhere in the middle, anchoring ourselves to a numbing apathy Because we don't want our lives to be destroyed, and we don't have the sacrificial spirit required to follow the righteous passion, so we're somewhere in the middle. But here's the good news. Wherever we fall on the spectrum, there is a little spark or clue that signals the life-giving passion that God has instilled within you. When I was younger, I played baseball, and I had a passion for baseball, which, of course, isn't inherently bad. It was a good thing. In fact, it brought great joy to my life. But in some ways, this passion became more self-serving than others-serving over time. So during my baseball career, I was in college, and that's the time in my life when I became a follower of Jesus. And what began to emerge and form inside of me was my passion for baseball was still there. I still loved baseball, but I would deem it at that point in my life, it started to become more of a lesser desire. 
because there was a greater desire that was growing in me, one for God, but also for God's work in the world. And so I became a follower of Jesus, and one of the desires that emerged from that was, hey, I'm going to start, there weren't any other Christians on the baseball team, so I said, I'm going to start a Bible study, and seven people came, which was really cool. And I was a terrible leader, and I was like, they're never going to come back. They did come back, and it was this kind of journey I went on with, with these guys. And, and, and then fast forward, I became the chaplain of the baseball team later. And then fast forward my life a little bit later, I started, started really developing this passion for the local church. I heard this one pastor leader guy say, the local church is the hope of the world and its future rests in the hands of its leaders. And I just got chill bumps. And I was like, yes, that's like my, that's my passion. I want to invest in building the local church. So, so there's a local church or churches that thrive and flourish and prevail. I said, yeah, that's me. And, and then, you know, you keep going in my life and I'm sort of zipping through it. But my passion uh, became more specific I remember the summer I was at this church in L.A., and I was a pastor there, and, and our executive pastor, he used to get asked the question, this was a known church kind of around, but he used to get asked the question, all these young 20-somethings, hey, do you guys have an internship? And he would just say yes, and they'd say, when does it start? And he would just make up a date, June 16th. So they'd all show up on June 16th, but he didn't really have the thing mapped out. And so they all showed up, and, and one summer, 25 interns showed up which was pretty cool, right? God was like bringing us all these interns and they had a good time and they learned some stuff along the way in the summer. But what happened in my own heart that summer as they went through the summer and they made copies and helped and served and it was awesome for our church and hopefully for them to some degree. But I stood back and I went, we are not optimizing these hungry, thirsty, curious interns who come in, are coming from literally around the world to learn how we're kind of reaching non-believing people and, and serving them and reaching our city in L.A. and this kind of thing. And I'm like, we're, we need to do more intentionally for them. And it was in that space that, I, that, that my desire grew to invest in young 20-something leaders who cared about the church, who cared about building the church, growing the church, and making it everything God wanted to be. The next year, I started something we called the Protege Program, which was a leadership development, sort of like an internship on steroids, if you will. And we tried to create all this intentionality around it. And then fast forward a decade later, I'm here at Awakening Church. And in September, we're going to start a Protege Program here, a nine-month leadership development type experience. And you just, that's just a snapshot into, into my own world and life, but, but how a passion develops over time. Because passion answers the where question. It answers the where question, where should I best serve? Passion directs you where to focus your abilities, your gifts, your talents. And often it's a journey to get there. It's not just this one enlightened moment. God puts a passion in you. And then he has a purpose for that passion. A purpose for that passion. And that passion can be formed over time as you serve other people. For me, I saw a need on the baseball team, so I started a Bible study. I jumped in to serve. I saw a need with the interns. I jumped in to serve. And it was in the serving in these areas that were, that were needs in front of me that I just jumped in that my passion over time became clearer and stronger to build the church, to make contributions that I felt God compelling me to make. Philippians 2.13 says this, For God is working in you. He's working in you. He was working in me, giving you the desire... And the power to do what pleases him or to accomplish his purposes. He's forming that, shaping that, cultivating that in you. And it's in the stepping out to serve that he begins to form and shape that passion. Because passion isn't static. 
as it changes, it becomes healthier or maybe it goes the other direction. One of the responsibilities and privileges that we carry as followers of Jesus is that we gravitate toward the noble passions within us and we run or flee from the darker ones. It's in this recognition of the honorable passions that God instills within us along with the pursuit of them, that will lead us to finding God's purpose for our lives. So pause for a second and think of your own life. I mean, how clear are you right now about what you're passionate about? I mean, what do you care about most? What, what do you carry that burden for? What do you see happening in the world that's not right? And you go, I want to make a difference. Maybe you're not clear. Maybe you're moderately clear. Maybe you're very clear. It's okay wherever you are. But, but assess that and go, here's where I'm at with it. Sometimes it's a journey. But part of this whole journey is to assess where you're at and where you need to go. So where are you at with what you're passionate about and then aligning your life with that? Along the way, right, this morning and in this series, it all can't happen in this 30, 35-minute space where we're talking, you know, giving a talk. You have to reflect. You have to examine Okay, now we move to the E, from the D, desires, to the E, experiences. What are my life experiences, good or bad, that have shaped who I am and where I am going? All of us have been shaped by our experiences in life, most of which are beyond our control. And God wants to use the experiences in your life to accomplish his purposes through your life. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that in all things, not some things, but all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been called according to God's purpose. And he's working in all things, in all life experiences you have. He is at work. So really practically speaking, I want to give you six quick examples. kinds of experiences that you have in your life that, that you need to examine if you want to find and discover and sift through the clues of your design. The first one is this, family experiences. And, and there's good and bad, hard and easy, but how has your family shaped you? What has your family culture and values been and, and what's been passed on to you? God wants to use that in your life, speak to you through that. Second, spiritual experiences. What have been your most defining moments with God? I mean, these can be huge clues, can be huge clues to what God wants to do in your life and through your life going forward. God wants to use whatever it is, your spiritual story, wherever that's you know, taken you, wherever you've been taken, to impact others. He wants to use that. Third, educational experiences. What subjects, look back in school, whether it was early on or later, what subjects were you drawn to most? What subjects did you thrive in? I mean, that's important to know because it can inform where and how God wants to use you. I mean, there are themes, if you took time to reflect, some of you maybe have, there are themes laced throughout your history, your life, your education that that point to, you know, even in the early years of what God is doing, of a passion in your heart even. And they can be significant clues to your calling. Fourth, vocational experiences. I mean, quite simply, what jobs have you had that you've been most effective at? Or maybe you ask the opposite. What have you been most ineffective at? That's good to know too. But also where, where there's a job that you've been effective at and, and, and the closer you can get to something that you also enjoy, that's a real good convergence. And we're not all in that place and that's hard to, you know, sometimes we speak in ideal terms around vocation. 
but pay attention to what's What's happened along the way in your vocation? And maybe even you invite other people you've worked with to speak into that, to weigh in with that. All right, fifth, ministry experiences. How have you served God and his church in the past? I mean, what, do you, what have you resonated most with when you've volunteered or served? What do you enjoy volunteering to do? And sometimes it's not even about what someone does. Sometimes it's about the people you get to serve with. I remember when I did uh, youth ministry, and I was, I was serving high school students, which that wasn't really my passion, um, but, you know, God loves high school students, but it wasn't my thing. But I had this team of people, and we loved doing ministry together. There was like 12 of us, and we just got to serve together, and I think there was like two of them that would have opted into serving high school students, and, and it was more about us as a team. We're going to do this together, and we invested in these high school students, and it was, and it was fun. You know, and that, that, was, that was, you know, a part of my own journey of discovery of ministry. And sometimes it's about who I get to do it with as much as it's about what I actually get to do. I mean, there are tons of places to serve when you think about awakening. And lots of you serve already, which we're very grateful here. But there's areas in the kids' ministry, the cafe, the connection team, setting up and tearing down, technical things. I mean, the list goes on. And frankly, very personally, I would love to talk to anyone who's interested in serving more at awakening. There's tons of needs and so let me know anytime you want. We have these blue cards, right? We, we talk about these pretty much every week. And you have these little check boxes that you can put, hey, I want to I wanna check, I want to volunteer in kids area, cafe, ambiance, whatever, right? So you can always fill it out, put it in the boxes or bring it to us at the connection booth. Great way to jump in and serve. All right, number six. This one's a little harder, but painful experiences. What trials, struggles, or pains have formed you who you are today? It's often the painful experiences that God uses most to prepare you for ministry and to open the path to you having a great impact for the kingdom. Experience isn't simply what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. That means that nothing that's ever happened in your life, no matter how painful or hurtful or hard, is insignificant. And God won't waste that. God wants to use all of your life experiences, the good, the bad, the hard, to form you and then to use you to bless and shape others. So what will you do with what you've been through? What will you do with what you've been through? You have to decide that. And it's important to reflect on your life experiences and say, hey, God, how do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to serve? In what ways do you want me to serve you or serve others? All right, now we turn to the S, spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to do a quick upfront um, self-assessment of sorts, and here's kind of a good way to do it, um, perhaps for you, Josh. Yes. SpongeBob, spiritual gifts, right. So where are you on the list? I don't know, but worship, leadership, you, you, you know, you, you self mercies. I think that's, I don't know what that is. But um, anyway, came across that, thought that would be helpful. Maybe not. Anyhow, <laughs> spiritual gifts. Right? What spiritual gift do you have or gifts do you have? That's a very important question. And, and frankly, the, the research says this in summation, that Christians across the board don't really know clearly what their spiritual gifts are. And even if they do, they're not developing or don't know how to develop and they're not using them. That's the majority of Christians out there. And we don't want that to be the case at awakening. So let me define spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a special ability given by the Holy Spirit, God, and is distributed to every follower of Jesus 
according to God's design and grace for the common good of the body of Christ. Let's break that down. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, A spiritual gift is given to each of us for the common good. So if you're a follower of Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. That's what the Bible tells us. And then it says, and your gifts are not for yourself. They're to be used for the common good, to benefit others, essentially. Then we read later in that same text, it is the one and only Holy Spirit who distributes these gifts as he chooses. He alone decides which gift each person should have. So God gives the gifts. You don't earn them. You don't really deserve them. You don't get to choose them. I mean, that's really why they're called gifts. But here's the thing. If others don't use their gifts, you get cheated. But if you don't use your gifts, they get cheated, which is why we're commanded in Scripture to discover, develop, and use our spiritual gifts. Paul told his protege, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you. Or a different translation says it like this. Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. And then 1 Peter 4.10 says, God has given gifts to each of you from his great variety of spiritual gifts. And then he says, manage them well, then God will be given glory. At Awakening, we're out there with this. We want to help you as much as we can discover and then develop and use your spiritual gift. We want you to discover who, design, who God designed you to be in this capacity. So to do that, the next two Sundays, we're going to dive really deeply into spiritual gifts and just extend that out and talk you know, as much as we can about that in the time that we have. So we hope that you will join us. Because here's the deal. We want to be a church that flourishes and thrives and prevails. And we won't become that. We won't become that. Unless you decide, us as individuals, us as a community, we decide to identify our spiritual gifts, then start developing them and using them in the context of our community and beyond. Because serving in this capacity is critical to our church, but here's the thing, it's critical to you personally and your own spiritual maturity process as well. This is part of God's calling for your life, part of his formation in your life, to discover your gift and use it and develop it. So for just a second... Do a quick self-assessment in your own heart. You can write it down if you want in your notes. I mean, how clear are you today about your spiritual gift or gifts? We all have at least one. Sometimes we have two or three. But how clear are you? Are you, are you unclear? Are you moderately clear? Are you very clear or somewhere you know, on that spectrum different than that? It's okay wherever you are. But, but, but I would say this, come back the next two weeks because we want to get clarity on that. And even for a moment... What do you think, what's your best guess even at, at one of your spiritual gifts or two or three of your spiritual gifts? Go ahead and write it down. I mean, what's your, what's your best guess in this moment? A lot of you might, might know your spiritual gift. That's great. And some of you might not. So we're going to learn more about that. Okay, now we turn to the I, individual style. This is essentially about personality. It's kind of a fun one. So your individual style is about your inborn, God-given personality preferences. That's an important word, your preferences or tendencies. These aren't right or wrong. They're different. The Bible says this, God works through different people in different ways, but it is the same God who achieves his purpose through them all. Your individual style remains constant over time. 
and is not permanently altered by temporary, you know, the pressures of temporary circumstances or, or an environment that you're in. In other words, if God made you an introvert, you don't just one day become an extrovert. God made some people to help create order, and you're really good at creating order, and he made other people to mess things up, Right? No, not really, but, but, but you know, you get the point, right? But if, if God made you, think about it, if God made you prefer routine, that preference doesn't change over time. Yes, you have to learn to ad- adapt to the world that you live, and that's a good thing. It's actually a maturity thing, but your preference doesn't change. So my wife is a good example. She prefers spontaneity. She doesn't like a lot of structure. Limited, the less structure, the better kind of thing. But we have kids and you got to create some predictability and stability and structure for them if they're going to thrive. So it goes against her preference, but she realizes this is necessary. She, she was a nurse before we had kids, and, and that demanded she had to do certain paperwork and create different structures and, and be more organized. So question for you, does she tell her boss that she's an ESTP on the Myers-Briggs and that she doesn't do structure? And the answer is no. no. Good, good, good. Geniuses. Okay. <laughs> Individual style can explain our behavior, but ought never to excuse it. Although we have a preference, and it's important to be clear on our preference, we have to adapt to the world in which we live, whether it's at work or family or wherever, with friends. And here's what we naturally tend to do. We tend to look at our personality preferences and essentially criticize others rather than appreciate their differences. We often do it kind of subtly. Maybe not so subtly for some, but we tend to think our preferred way is the right way, subconsciously, or, or the best way. So if we're really organized, that's a value, but it's also a, a, you know, um, a part of our individual style, then we think everyone should be organized just like us, and if they're not, we sort of look down on them in one way or another. Or think about thinkers and feelers. So feelers sometimes feel that thinkers are a little bit too harsh, maybe a lot too harsh. And thinkers think feelers are a little bit too what? Nice or soft or, you know, fill in the blank. Don't run wild on that. But anyway, I'm a feeler. My wife's a thinker. And neither is inherently right or wrong. Feelers just are a lot more like Jesus. Anyhow. Moving on. There's tons more. There's tons more. My wife would have a different view, but um, there's tons more we could say on personality, right? But, but let me give you two questions to self-assess really practically. The first one's this, how are you energized? This is around, you know, how you prefer to interact with people or tasks. Are you more task-oriented or are you more people-oriented? So for task-oriented people, you usually are energized by doing things, accomplishing tasks, working with people who share commitment to the task, you can feel a little stressed or frustrated when there are too many relational activities. For people-oriented people, which I have to say, you're not more holy than task-oriented, just in case you're wondering, you are energized by interpersonal relationships, interactions with people, or working with people in a team setting. And you may, be uncom- may, may feel uncomfortable or frustrated or awkward when required to handle too many tasks at once. Now, this is important to note. Whether you are more task-oriented or more people-oriented, both of you value developing relationships and meeting goals. You just go about it in a different way. Sometimes a task-oriented person is task-focused in a way that serves the most amount of people the best way. Second question, 
how are you organized? How are you energized? How are you organized? This one's about are you structured or unstructured? Unstructured people tend to put everything into piles contrasted with structured people who put everything into files, basically, right? Unstructured people tend to be less concerned with being precise or they prefer options and flexibility. They prefer a variety of activities. um, They tend to be comfortable in undefined situations or they like spontaneous relationships. Structured people, they put everything, or sorry, they yeah, put everything in files. Be more, they're more detailed. They tend to plan and bring order to their lives, sometimes impose it on others. Enjoy stability and consistency in relationships. They make decisions and seek closure. They like things more clearly defined. That's a structured person. And remember this, both structured and unstructured people both value being organized Structured people listen in really closely. They just have a different way of organizing. Everybody say in unstructured, and if you're unstructured, everybody say amen on that, right? Because you have a room and it's got piles or a desk and it has piles and you know where that stuff is, right? I mean, you know right where the t-shirt that you wore two weeks ago that's under 17 other things is. And it's amazing, right? So you have your own way of doing it. Neither is right or wrong or better. Some more efficient, but you know, nonetheless. But here's the thing. So, yeah, there are people that are a blend. It's not necessarily one or the other in the extreme on both structured, unstructured people tasks. There can be a blend. But your individual style affects how you use your spiritual gifts and natural abilities, among other things. For instance, two people can have the same gift. Let's say the gift of helps. One's people-oriented, one's more task-oriented. And so that gift of helps plays out in a whole different way. And that's okay. That's good. That's important to know. The better you understand your strengths, weaknesses, and the nuances of your individual style, your preferences, your tendencies, the better you can discern the roles and functions that you both enjoy, but also have potential in to make a significant contribution, both within the church and outside the church, right? Both in a spiritual community and at your work or neighborhood or family and all that. So pause for a moment and assess, are you more task-oriented or people-oriented, And to what degree? Are you more structured or unstructured? And to what degree? I'm going to bring up a graph, just kind of a quick glance. And, you know, there's a few examples up there. You know, people that would be like task unstructured Mike, like to the nth degree. So he hates people, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. Um, You know, and then you have, you know, you have like where you are and then your comfort zone. I mean, Jenna's right in the middle, right? She's a blend of kind of all of it. So she's sort of like medium structure, medium unstructure, medium task, medium people, you know. So there's a variety. But anywhere on that quadrant is not worse or better. It's different. And that seems simple, but it isn't always how it plays out in terms of how we view it. And so think about yourself, draw that graph if you want really quick, and put yourself, where are you at? It's important to know about yourself. It's important to know, one, so you can communicate to others, but two, so so that you can actually function best and most optimally in your preference when you're able to, and then you learn to adapt when you're not able to. All right, next letter, G. G stands for growth season. What season of life are you in right now? Ecclesiastes 3.1 says this, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun, under heaven. Ecclesiastes 8, 5 and 6, The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. There are rhythms and timings to life. But no matter what season you're in, I can almost guarantee 
that everyone is going through some growth season, some type of growth season right now. Because God is always using things in our lives to stretch us, to increase our dependence on Him, and in this case, to illuminate new ways we can serve Him and other people. If I sat down with each one of you and asked a simple question, what are you struggling with right now? I mean, no, none of you, I don't think, would say, I'm 100% struggle-free. Anybody? I mean, if that's you, you should be, in, I mean, just like immeasurably grateful. But life, right, is, is filled with struggles, and there are differing degrees. It's in the struggles that the God-inspired growth happens, even when it doesn't seem like it's happening. God is at work. And our first response, perhaps, in all that is usually to feel the burden that comes with these difficulties. And it can be overwhelming when we think about the struggles or challenges or limitations that, that we have in our lives. And that's a reasonable response. But God beckons us to look beyond the limitations and the struggles and ask Him, no matter what growth season we're in, how do you want to use me, God? How do you want to use me in light of my unique challenges and my unique gifts within those challenges to serve you and others more? My wife, Sherry, is, is a good example right now. She has limitations in how she can serve in our local church context or in other capacities because we have a son who has severe anxiety, and, and so she can't serve in kind of normal ways. So what is someone in her position to do? Does she, does she stress herself out and beat herself up because she's not able to serve in sort of the typical way or the way she's accustomed to? Answer, no. Does she give up and give in to the limitations and become a bystander instead of a player? I'd say no. She asks, how can God use me in this growth season? Or what am I not seeing, God, that you want me to see? So for Sherry, she started writing again. And she shares stories of what God is doing in her life. She also has moms over who have autistic kids, and she serves them and tries to be empathetic with them and share you know, in their struggles with them. She also meets with couples from time to time who are in relationship situations or marriage counseling, she does. I mean, she can't do the typical serving, like help with set up and tear down, or even in the kids' ministry right now, but she can do things from her home because that's where Holden feels safe, and and that's a place where where she has the opportunity to serve. So she writes, she has moms over, she counsels, she mentors people all out of her house. So the point is this. There's never a time when you just stop serving, even when the limitations are at their greatest. Because serving, however that looks, is critical. It's critical to your formation as a human being. It's critical to what God is doing in and wants to do through your life. I mean, my friend Reed in, in this community, many of you know Reed. I mean, he's another amazing example in a whole different way, right? He, he works at Yahoo. He has like two months off, sort of a, a sabbatical-ish thing after he's worked so many years there. And so he could do a lot with that time. I mean, imagine you have to work for two months, right? And, and Reed serves all along the way in many capacities, and he's just this like gold-hearted person <laughs> to me. And he does our website stuff, and he does video stuff, and he created, um, he created our streaming video but we don't like use a service. He just like made his own version. I think he just whipped his wallet out one day, like put some stuff together, MacGyver style, if you know that, something like that. That's what it seems like to me, right? Maybe a little more technical, but you know, you get the point. And Reed just has this like amazing heart that, that just serves. And he's in this two month season, right? This short little season. And he decides that for a week, and it's really going to be more, but for a week, so this past week, he's at the office all week and he's got his computer set up and he's got whiteboards and post-its everywhere. 
right? And he's just like, like building out our website and there's short-term goals and long-term goals and he's doing all this stuff, right? And I could go on and on about Reed. But it's amazing, right? He chose to use his time in this season, right? Because he has some free time. But he can choose whatever he wants to do with it, but he has free time. And so he, it, it's, a, it's an example in a whole different stream of him saying, hey, sometimes you have limitations, but sometimes you have freedoms. And I'm going to choose my freedoms to step in and serve. And these are all reminders that we all have limitations and we have freedoms according to what season we're in in life. When you look at someone who serves, the thought might enter your head that they are fortunate, that they have the time and abilities to do that, which you don't. But that's not really true. Really never. Everyone who serves, serves with some struggle and some limitations in their lives. And God uses the growth season for everyone, not just a chosen few. So what season are you in? And how does that affect or inform how you serve? Are you asking the question, all right, God, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do through me? How do you want me to serve? I mean, that's important to be realistic about and important to see clearly. All right, last letter in the word design, natural abilities. What natural abilities or you could say talents or skills do you have? So this is not simply about what you like to do because some people really like to sing. But we don't let them on the stage to sing. And you're... You should be glad. I'm one of them, okay? <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, I might like to sing, but this is about what you're good at. I mean, you hope you like what you're good at, or at least some things that you're good at. And the Bible says this, that God gives special assignments to people to each according to each one's unique ability. I actually did play guitar one time in college in front of people and sang, and that was the last time, and it should be the last time it's ever happened, but I digress, side note. Anyway, when God wanted to create the tabernacle and all the utensils for worship, he provided artists and craftsmen who were shaped with, uh, it says, skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. The Bible also says God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. And then in 1 Peter, God has given each of you some special abilities. Be sure to use them to help each other, passing on to others God's many kinds of blessings. No matter what your abilities are, they're from God. And every ability can be used for God's glory to build his church, to expand his kingdom. Since your natural abilities are from God, they're just as important, I would say just as, quote, as spiritual as your spiritual gifts. There's one major distinction and it's that your natural abilities were given to you at birth. Spiritual gifts, according to the Bible, are given only to Christ's followers, which happens at our spiritual birth. So 1 Corinthians 2 says it like this, Who does not have, Whoever does not have the Spirit cannot receive the gifts that come from God's Spirit. One challenge we face in this whole conversation about natural abilities is that we tend, or our human tendency is we zero in on what we're not good at. We zero in on what we're not good at, and we even compare what we're not good at to what other people are good at, and we focus on what we can't do rather than what God has given us what we can do. Many studies have shown that the average person has between 500 and 800 abilities, so there are no no-talent people. Everybody say, I'm talented. I'm talented. Man, that's more enthusiasm. Ready? Do it again. Ready? All right, there we go. We have a very talented church, right? All of you, all of you have 500 to 800 natural abilities or talents. I mean, that's amazing, right? I mean, there's a whole, there's like millions, I think. I do the math on the top of my head. Anyway, 
You don't even realize a lot of them. And I think part of the journey here with your design is saying, hey, write them down. I mean, you could even do it right now. Write them down. Three, four, five of them, natural abilities that God has given you, because how might he want to use them? Sometimes we don't even realize it. Sometimes we don't value some ability that we have or realize, hey, God might want to use this ability. Identifying your abilities are a significant part of discovering God's design so that you can know his will and find direction for your life. So think about, just real quick, if you do like a scan through the Bible, I got this from somebody else, and he wrote out all these different abilities. But there's athletic abilities in the Bible. These are all in the Bible. Athletic, artistic, architecture, administrating, baking, boat making, debating, engraving, poetic ability, farming, fishing, managing, masonry, building pallets. People did it in our community. Thank you, Meshkis. Musical, planning, carpentry, selling, tailoring, tent making, writing. I mean, the list goes on and on. All these abilities, all in the Bible, all came from God, all can be used by God for his glory, to build his church, to expand his kingdom, to serve others out there. So you are responsible to identify the, the creative best, we read earlier, of who you are. The abilities that, that, that make you you, the unique and strong you. That's the invitation of God for your life. To get a clear idea of how God designed you and prepared you for serving him, you have to take time to reflect. You have to sink more deeply into that. And so every week, you know, we pass out these, these programs at the door, and it's really great because a, a lot of you recycle these, and we're grateful for that. Well, today, I want you to take it home, okay? No recycling allowed today, okay? So I want you to take it home because I want you to reflect on these six core dimensions, design, experience, right, the whole, the whole list, spiritual gifts, individual style, gross season, natural abilities, because this is not all going to be wrapped up into one 30-minute session here, and you're gonna, you have to reflect on this, right? That's important. So take this as a resource. I'm going to invite Ryan back up. We're going to do one final song. But when we begin to do this, here's the deal. What will emerge in our heart and our life is joy and meaning and gratitude. We'll begin to experience deeper fulfillment and clarity and freedom. We'll find purpose and so much more. I mean, this quest is a lot like an archaeological dig, really. It can take time to uncover the treasures, the treasures that lie buried beneath the surface. You can never be certain of what you will find or where you will find it, and sometimes it can be a painstaking process. But the failure to dig deep result in a life that lacks destiny, purpose, and meaning. It will be a life lacking joy and gratitude to the God who designed you so incredibly unique, so special, so immeasurable, valuable. That's you. That's how God sees you. God crafted you very specifically, very uniquely. I mean, we have to become, if we want to take this journey seriously, we have to become archaeologists of our own lives. And ultimately, what we will discover is that the creator of the universe, he sculpted you, he formed you, he shaped you, he designed you so intentionally, so purposefully. I mean, you're not a useless app. You're not a useless person. You have intention and focus in the design that God created you with. God made you so amazingly unique to honor him, to serve others, to expand his kingdom, to do good in the world, to align with his purpose, with your one and only life. And as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, it's in Christ, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. And then Paul tells us in the next verse that we are part of the overall purpose that he is working out 
in everyone and everything. That does not exclude you. That includes you. Because God looks at you with great love and immeasurable value. He designed you an original. You are his masterpiece. So do your part and examine your design and ask God, God, how do you want to use me now and in the days and weeks and months and years to come? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the joy and the gratitude that comes in moments that we get to look at really ourselves and say, wow, God, that you've given us talent and abilities, you've given us experiences and gifts and so much. And you said, all right, now be stewards. Manage them well for my glory. And I pray for our church. I pray for every individual here, and I pray for our church that we would do that well. In Jesus' name.